I invite you guys to go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And as you are turning there, I want to put another verse in front of you this morning that, excuse me, not this morning. Wow, that is a, I, I am in the habit of saying this morning. Just bear with me if I say that. But we're going to put up another, uh, another verse up on the screen. And it's a verse that is probably very well known to you. However, sometimes aren't those the verses that we very quickly skim over? Because, oh yeah, I've heard that one before. Oh, I, I know that one before. Oh yeah, I memorized that in Awana before. And I realize you know it, but we need to ask the Lord that he would take this simple truth and that, that, that many of us know and many of us are very familiar with and that God would help us feel and experience this truth, not just in our heads, but in our hearts tonight. That we would slow down long enough to feel the weightiness of these things. And the verse I'm speaking of is Romans 6.23. Paul writing to the Romans, he says, For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. Now most of you know what it's like to have a payday. Right? Many jobs I've had, usually Friday was payday. You, you put your hours in during the week and then you can expect your wages at the end of the week. When Paul writes of the wages of sin being death, he's teaching us that because of our sin, because of our turning from the desires of God, because of humanity rebelling against him, we have rightly earned and deserved death an eternal separation from his presence. And it's a payday that none of us want to experience. It's the Friday that none of us are looking forward to or anticipating. The wrath of God being poured out, being forsaken and separated from God, and yet it is the payday that we had earned. The wages of your sin is death. Now, the reason that Good Friday is so good is because Jesus came and took what we had earned. Jesus took what we deserved to receive on Friday. You see, we wrongly think that we deserve so many things. But Good Friday is not usually one of those things we think we deserve. And that's why a night like tonight as we worship and as we remember Christ taking what we deserve, it can completely transform our lives. You see, because we are an entitled people. We who live in Franklin, Indiana in the year 2021, we are an entitled people. We think that we deserve the best payday that is out there and we fall apart when we don't get what we think is owed to us by God. We grow depressed and discouraged when we don't get what we think we deserve in life right here and right now. We become anxious and fearful when we think we might not get what we deserve in the future and we grow embittered and angry when we think we didn't get what we deserved in the past. And church, we are an entitled people, but God in his goodness, 
is pleased to write us a prescription to treat this sense of entitlement every year, and he writes on it, Good Friday, the wages of sin is death. The Bible doesn't have long lists of things that you deserve, but here's one of them. You, in your sin, deserved death. And tonight, we need to feel the weight of that. We need to swallow it down and digest it because that is the only thing that can cure us from our prideful and entitled hearts. But my prayer for us leading up to this week, my prayer for this time is that although we might walk in here with hearts of entitlement, that as we behold Christ on the cross, that that sense of entitlement would be crucified and our hearts would instead start welling up with gratitude. I mean, how can we walk away from the foot of the cross without anything but gratitude in our hearts? Now, when Adam and Eve sinned against God back in the Garden of Eden, God cursed the ground. He said that thorns and thistles were going to be what it brought forth from now on, and that Adam would have to painfully work and toil until he returned to that ground. An animal at that time in Genesis, an animal was killed in order for Adam and Eve to have some garments of clothing placed on them. Blood was shed. However, God also gives them a promise that one of Adam and Eve's offspring is going to come along and the enemy will bruise his heel, but he will crush the enemy's head. And humanity has been waiting for this offspring to come. And now we pick up the story in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Jesus is with his disciples. They've come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which you'll remember the Passover was the holiday or the feast that the people of God celebrated, remembering how God had rescued them and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And during this Passover feast, there was a lot of blood that was shed during this holiday. Josephus, a Jewish historian, he estimated that during the time of this story in Mark that approximately 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple in one afternoon during Passover. 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple in one afternoon during the Passover. That's approximately 144 priests killing six lambs a minute for five hours straight. 144 priests killing six lambs a minute for five hours straight. That's a lot of blood. And all those sacrifices were supposed to be pointing people to and preparing them for what Jesus was going to do. And Jesus now is going to show us how he is going to take the curse upon himself. He is going to be bruised by the enemy. He is going to be the sacrificial lamb and take what we deserve. And we pick up the story, Mark 15, verse 16. Jesus has just been delivered over to Pilate. He's been whipped and beaten. The soldiers have him and are getting him ready to be crucified. Follow along, Mark 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Notice the crown that was placed on our Savior's head. A crown of thorns 
Thorns and thistles were what God said the ground was going to produce because of sin. It's what creation deserved because of sin. And here Jesus is taking it upon his own head. And the thorns are piercing his head. Blood is streaming down his face. This crown is placed upon him. He's mocked by the soldiers. Verse 19. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Golgotha was a hill outside of Jerusalem, and it looked like a skull. And isn't it fitting that the one who would come to crush the enemy's head would do that here on Golgotha? So we could behold the glory of our Savior's cross as it goes into the ground. Doesn't it give us this beautiful picture of Christ crushing the enemy's head by the power of the cross? We recently got a letter from uh, a girl named uh, Nima who lives in, in Tanzania. She's a child we've been sponsoring through Compassion International. And in her letter, she greeted us in the name of Jesus Christ, the warrior of Golgotha. That's how she greeted us. I was like, oh, I like that, Nima. That'll, that'll preach, Nima. That'll preach. The warrior of Golgotha. And the warrior of Golgotha is about to crush the enemy's head. Look at verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Stop for a second. Anything here remind you of, of Christmas? I know it's a weird time to think of Christmas, but you remember the three wise men, they brought Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was symbolic of his kingship. It was a gift that you gave to a king. Frankincense was a symbolic of his deity. Him being God, it was often burned and worshipped to, to, to worship and praise God. And myrrh was an anointing or an embalming oil pointing to his death. And so even at Christmas time, we see that the gifts being given are pointing to this moment. The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh are pointing to Jesus being a king who is God, who is going to die for his people. He's a king who is God, who is going to take what his people deserve. And during this crucifixion, myrrh mixed with wine, it was often given to people to try to, 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 to help numb the pain, sort of. And Jesus refuses it. He won't have it. He's not trying to escape any of the pain. He's not trying to numb any of it. He's going to experience all of it. Verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. That's 9 a.m. Verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, this is noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours there was complete darkness. And this wasn't just like a cloud covering up the sky. This wasn't just like a foggy day, just a little bit darker than normal. This, this was complete darkness. And we know that because it was not just dark in Jerusalem. No, this was a historically documented darkness throughout the whole known world. Non-Christian historians document this darkness as far as Rome and Athens that lasted three hours. And some of them tried to explain it away with like a solar eclipse, but we know a solar eclipse wouldn't really last that long. This was a supernatural darkness. And remember when this is happening. This is taking place during the Passover, which was a celebration of when God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and he did so with ten plagues. The ninth plague was three days of darkness, followed by the tenth plague, the death of all the firstborn sons. Do you see what's happening here? God's not being even that subtle. Jesus is our true Passover lamb. And we are rescued from our slavery to Satan's sin and death by the death of God's Son, which immediately followed three hours of complete darkness. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a cry of agony. As Jesus is being forsaken by the Father, he's taking what we in our sin deserved. You see, Jesus is in such agony here because up until this point, he has never experienced the consequences of sin before. Sure, like all throughout the day, he's been experiencing physical pain and torture, but now on the cross, he is taking upon himself all the sins of his people, and the consequence of that sin is it separates him from the Father. It's what we deserved. Sin separates us from God. Jesus takes what we deserved and he is now being forsaken by the Father. But Jesus is not a helpless victim here. And those who would claim some sort of cosmic child abuse or something like that, they do not understand the deity and authority of Jesus. Jesus, when speaking of his own life, said in, in John chapter 10, verse 18, he said, No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus was a willing sacrifice. He willingly took upon our sins for a few hours and was forsaken by the Father, a pain that he had never experienced before. And for a second, let's just try to understand how painful this forsakenness would have been. We're, we're not going to be able to col- totally comprehend it, but let's just try to get maybe a little taste of it. Because you see, in our life, the closer we are to someone, the more painful it is when they leave, right? The closer you are, the more painful it is. For example, if you met someone here for the first time tonight and after the service they come up to you and say they don't really want to hang out anymore, that might be a little weird and a little awkward, but it's not going to be that painful. You'll probably get over it. If a colleague at work who you don't really hang out with that much says, hey, uh, they get a different job and they move jobs and you don't see them now as much, you, you might miss them some at work, but it's not that painful. But if your spouse tells you they're leaving, if you've got a close family member or friend who passes away, if you've got a friend that maybe shuts you out of their life, that is painful. I've heard it said the longer the love and the deeper the love, the greater it hurts when it's lost. Now think for a second about this forsakenness of Jesus because it goes to a whole new level. Jesus and the Father had been for eternity in perfect communion with one another. That is a long time and that is a deep love. And this is a deep and painful hurt for Jesus to be forsaken by the Father. And what's even more glorious about this is that Jesus took what we deserved. He took the wages of our sin. He willingly suffered the temporary loss of that relationship so that you and I would never have to be forsaken by God. Praise God. Why was the Son of God forsaken? So that you and I would never have to be forsaken by God. He took what we deserved. Verse 35. Mark 15, verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. We've been preaching through the book of Hebrews on Sunday morning. And so you you guys know that the curtain in the tabernacle or in the temple, it separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the place. And the Holy of Holies was where God's presence dwelt on earth. And the curtain in the temple, it was 60 feet high. It was four inches thick. This was a big, giant curtain. And when Jesus died... When he yielded up his spirit and breathed his his last breath, the curtain was torn in two. 
signifying that through the blood of Jesus, people could once again enter into the presence of God. The wrath of God had been satisfied and our sins had been taken away. You see, the glorious truth of Good Friday gets even better because not only did Jesus take what we deserved, but he also gives us what he deserves. Eternal access and fellowship with the Father. Jesus had earned a path back to God for humanity. What Adam and Eve lost in the garden has been regained by Christ. The curtain being torn in two signified that Jesus was the once and for all sufficient sacrifice for our sins. He completely and finally took the wages of our sins upon himself. And let's consider again Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Eternal life in Christ is not the wages of our good works. That is not something we can ever earn or deserve. It is the free gift of God. We deserved and rightfully earned death and God's wrath and separation from him. But Jesus took what we deserved upon himself so that we might receive all the blessings that he deserves. And now look back at our passage and see the power of the cross, how it can change hearts. Because the first proclaimer of the glory of Jesus in light of the cross was not who we would assume it would be. You'd think it would be Peter, James, or John, or one of those guys, but that's not who it is. Look back at Mark 15, verse 39. God's word says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. I mean, some of us just haven't quite understood how powerful Christ's death on the cross is. Some of you right now are maybe even a bit skeptical that beholding the cross can really heal your prideful, entitled heart. You think it's maybe just not powerful enough. But here is a Roman centurion likely a hardened and brutal man who has risen up the ranks of the Roman military, who had likely killed and crucified hundreds, if not thousands of people. And he is the first one after Jesus' death to proclaim who he truly is. He's the first herald, the first preacher. Oh, church, behold the power of God and Christ's work on the cross. It can soften the heart of the most unlikeliest of people. The cross is powerful enough to transform the heart of any man, woman, or child, even the one who you think there's no way that person would ever come to Christ. Listen, the cross is powerful enough to cause a hardened soldier to proclaim the glory of Jesus. The cross is powerful enough to change the heart of a person who says they'll never step foot in a church. The cross is powerful enough to even turn church people's hearts from resting in their self-righteousness to resting in Christ's righteousness alone. And the cross is powerful enough to cause the entitled heart 
to turn into a heart that is full of gratitude. A person who can receive with thanksgiving all that the Lord sends them, whether good or bad, whether much or little, whether happiness or sorrow, for how could anyone walk away from the cross with anything but gratitude? There is no other God like our God. There is no one else like Jesus who would take what his people deserved so that they can receive what he deserves. A journalist named Ellen Vaughn, she wrote a book called The God Who Hung on the Cross. And in it, she wrote a story about how the gospel came to a small village in Cambodia to an unlikely group of converts. In September 1999, there was a pastor who traveled to this small village in northern Cambodia. Most people in that area were practicing Buddhism or Spiritism, and Christianity was really unheard of. But to this pastor's surprise, when he arrives at this one small village, the people warmly embraced him and his message about Jesus. They responded to and received the gospel very quickly. I mean, they were just ready to, ready to receive it. And when he asked the villagers, hey, what's, what's going on here? Why are you so open to the gospel? An older woman shuffled forward. She grabbed his hand, kind of bowed to him. She said, we've been waiting for you for 20 years. And he asked her to explain what's going on with that. She said, you see, back in the 1970s, there was a brutal communist-led regime that came through Cambodia, destroyed everything in its past. When the soldiers finally got to this little village, they rounded up the villagers and forced them to start digging their own graves. I mean, can you imagine digging your own grave? And after the villagers had finished digging, they prepared themselves to die. Some screamed out to Buddha. Some others screamed out to demon spirits or to their ancestors. But one woman started crying for help based on a childhood memory. You see, this woman's mother had had a dream about a God who hung on a cross. And the woman prayed to that unknown God on a cross, for surely this God, if this God had known suffering, if he had known what it was like to be forsaken, surely he would be a God that would show compassion on them and their suffering. And suddenly all the villagers started praying to the God who had suffered and hung on a cross. And as they looked at their own graves, their loud wailing slowly turned into a quiet cry. And they slowly but surely got the courage to turn and face their captors, and they saw that they were all gone. And the elderly woman told this pastor that for 20 years they'd been waiting for someone to come and share with them the rest of the story about the God who had hung on a cross. You see, God is in the business of miraculously saving people through the power of the cross. And that pastor got to share with the villagers that the unknown God they had cried out to, his name is Jesus. And that Jesus had suffered and was forsaken by God so that we could be welcomed into the family of God as now sons and daughters. Oh, church, behold the cross and turn and see that your captors are gone. The warrior of Golgotha has crushed them. The sin that has held you captive, that has enslaved you, enslaved you, that's kept you in your pride and your sense of entitlement. 
Those enemies have been defeated. You are free from them. They do not enslave you any longer. The captors are gone. Jesus Christ has taken what we deserved so that we can receive what he deserves. And oh, may our hearts be emptied of their entitlement and may they well up with gratitude as we behold the cross. Let's pray.